0: This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. I am the author of Embracing the Abyss. A true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. See, the abyss is where your abyss becomes a portal to your soul. Today's readings, lessons, are based upon this book, Embracing the abyss, and I've had chapters read, and uh, situations where people want to hear more. They like to, they like the book. So today we'll see if we can't uh, do a few chapters here within this uh, first half hour. And here goes. We'll start up again. Chapter 26 is called or titled Ricky Wayne. In 1999, I heard that Rick Ramsey was in the hospital and had been there a short while. He wasn't doing very well and he had undergone some surgeries. Apparently, they found cancer in the frontal part of his brain behind his facial mask. I got the information from his son, Scott, and I told Scott that I'd like to go by and see his dad. He was glad that I'd called and asked me to do that. Alex and I arrived, walked to the door of his room, and met up with Scott. He said Rick had not been very active and was sleeping most of the time. Upon speaking, Rick heard my voice and woke up. Later, Scott told me that Rick had been out of it for a couple of days, not really communicating with anyone. Scott was quite surprised that Rick reacted the way he did. He said, I could speak with Rick but I would have to stand very close to position my ear near his mouth. As I did that, Rick began talking nonstop. He was telling me various things in earnest with a new energy. I hate to say it, but I didn't understand much of Rick's garbled words. From the rapid pace and anxiety in his voice, I sensed he was scared of dying <clears throat> With a calm voice, I told him not to be scared, that heaven was waiting on him because he had earned a place. He was a Church of Christ guy and had played the part well. Rick Ramsey was a good guy. And uh, he gave me the big break. And he protected me during the corporate days. Let's move on to chapter 27. Chapter 27 is entitled FBI lunch. In my 14th year of working with the FBI, I got a phone call again from FBI agent Hogue in charge of all Vernon savings cases. He asked if I could meet him for lunch in Bedford. Over the years, we had become friends and respected each other. The waitress seated us and served us iced tea. It had not been long since we were reunited in a federal income tax case filed by Woody's estate. He began by saying he had been in touch with all the others who had been involved in the prosecutions of Fernand savings individuals. He said he had confirmed with all agents and both of the Justice Department attorneys who prosecuted my case. He paused and said, they were all in agreement and wanted you to know, John, that we should not have prosecuted you. I was stunned. You could have scraped me off the table. It took a few minutes to gather my composure. When I could breathe and talk at the same time, I looked at him and said with a shaky voice, looks like you're buying lunch. He went on to say that they wanted to encourage me to make an application for presidential pardon. He said that he didn't know much about the process, but that they would support it. I thought about making the application and talked with Alex and my best friend, Coach. I learned that it would be something like what our friend Yogi Berra used to say, it's gonna be deja vu all over again. It meant that we would be questioned and interviewed by the FBI on behalf of the pardon attorney's office. Once again, my family, friends, employees, business associates, Neighbors and only God and the FBI knew who else would be involved in a new investigation. I put it off for almost a year. One day I was talking to Coach on the phone. We were going over the application filing. And again, he said with a pleading voice, hey, man, you got to do it. You just got to do it. Soon after that telephone conversation and talking it over with Alex again, I decided to make the application. I did not hire an attorney to make the application for me. I obtained the application form from the pardon attorney's office in Washington, D.C. I prepared requested information for the review. I remember looking for a typewriter because I had two choices. One was to print it by hand and the other was to type it. It took me a lot longer than I thought to find a regular old typewriter, but I finally found one on the Internet. With the embarrassing newspaper article from 1995 still fresh in my mind, I thought about how that continued to make me hesitate to be more involved in the community. I enclosed a cup of a copy of a letter that I wrote to the Department of Justice Attorneys last January, updating them on what I had been doing for the past 15 years as Exhibit A. I described my experience as a Summit County Colorado School Board member as a member, an example, of just how difficult it is to participate actively in community affairs when you carry the stigma of a felony conviction. I enclosed a copy of the newspaper article concerning the public embarrassment as a school board member as exhibit C. I also enclosed exhibit D, a page from an application form for volunteer work at Cook's Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas, reflecting disclosure of previous felony convictions, and an article from the Wall Street Journal as Exhibit E, discussing the same. I also enclosed as Exhibit F, Parade Magazine's cover, concerning a call to volunteer service by President Bush. I wanted once again to become active in my community as a volunteer in various charitable programs explore the possibility of running for a seat on the local school board. Join the local Rotary Club and expand my efforts of providing affordable housing to include the raising of funds from outside sources that would most certainly require detailed disclosures of my background. With the everyday news of corporate financial fraud and deception, I knew I had a message that should again be heard, especially by those in college who will be our business leaders of the future. I often thought about opening myself up and sharing my experiences again. But the thought of scandal and the impact on my family, had kept me quiet. Having a presidential pardon would lessen the stigma of my felony conviction. It would serve to propel me back to the podium. I also attached as Exhibit B a letter from Stephen Learned, attorney for the Justice Department, stating his willingness to assist in his application, in this application, for my presidential pardon. I stated in my application that over the years I had tried to right the wrong that I had caused at Vernon Savings and Loan through testifying the United States Department of Justice and by giving speeches on the topics of ethics. For 14 years, I had been the key witness for the Department of Justice, testifying numerous times in both criminal and civil cases. I was told by the Department of Justice that my cooperation and testimony saved the federal government millions of dollars in countless hours of time. Since the beginning weeks of the investigation of Vernon Savings and Loan, I tried in every way possible to right my crime and to be a responsible, productive citizen. I sincerely regretted that my actions, including my lack of proper action, caused problems, heartaches, and pain for others. I completed and sent in my application for presidential pardon in December 2003. Each year during the week of Thanksgiving, I would call the office in Washington, D.C. to speak with my pardon attorney, Hope McCallan, who had been assigned to my case. Each year, I began the conversation by saying, I've seen the turkeys again on TV getting pardoned from President Thanksgiving, just checking to see if my application is still under consideration. Each year, she would reply. Mr. Smith, I'm unable to give you any information with respect to your pardon application. Yes, I know. I was trying to see if it's been thrown away or if you still might have it when working on it. I have said all I can say, Mr. Smith. I know. I know. Thanks again. Chapter 28. Nazis for Neighbors. In June of 2006, we moved back to Colorado and bought a house on a quarter lot on Nelson Street in Littleton. One evening, I was picking up dog droppings on the backyard and met the daughter-in-law of the elderly lady living next door. During our conversation, she told me, among other things, that most of the family, including her husband, worked for the sheriff's department. My bag was now full and I said, nice to meet you, hope to see you again. In parting, she said that if, ever, if we ever needed help from the law to contact them, that they would be glad to help us in some way. Alex and I started our usual routine of deciding what we wanted to upgrade. This house was located on a corner lot and a tract home, so it needed a lot. In September, we put in a side fence between us and the house next door. The location of the fence, just inside our property line, revealed that a white PVC pipe coming from next door was encroaching onto our property. Since her elderly mother-in-law lived there, I decided not to bother her with the matter. Later that fall, the elderly lady passed away. I met her son across the side fence and offered my condolences. While talking I noticed the pipe and asked him if he knew what it was. He said he didn't but would take care of it. Some months passed and I saw a for sale sign in the neighborhood's in the neighbor's front yard. I called the real estate agent to get contact information for the for the seller. I informed the agent of the pipe trespassing onto my property and that it was discharging water onto my property. The Real estate agent was not aware of the pipe and said she would contact the seller. After not hearing from anyone about the pipe for a few days, I elevated the end of the pipe on my property, 30 to 40 degrees to demonstrate that the water was discharging from the pipe onto my property. The next morning I could see an icicle on the lip of the pipe, which showed the water continued to discharge onto my property. In March, I left for business in Texas and returned the next week. I discovered that the pipe had been cut and removed from my property, but it was still aiming at my property. I went to the Jefferson County Building Code Enforcement Department and was told that although it was improper, They couldn't do anything about it. I spoke with the county zoning enforcement who said they were unable to do anything and that it was a civil matter. I called the real estate agent and told her that just cutting the pipe wasn't enough and that the pipe was still discharging water onto my property. She argued that the builder designed the trains that way. And I told her that I didn't want to argue, and I said, I guess I'll have to call my attorney. She replied, go for it. At 8.30 a.m. the next morning, my doorbell rang. I opened the door to find a middle-aged woman in a sheriff's uniform standing on my front porch. She introduced herself as a deputy from Jefferson County and asked if I was having some issues with a pipe. Not thinking why she would be there, asking what question, that question, I said, sure, follow me. We went through the house and outside to the area between the two houses, and I explained all that had happened. During my explanation, she interrupted me and asked, did you touch the pipe? I said, yes, I wanted to demonstrate that it was discharging water onto my property. She then said, you're under arrest. And accordingly, I am going to have to issue you a ticket for criminal mischief. Not believing that any of this was actually happening, I restated the facts to no avail. My words fell upon two deaf ears. The pipe was on my property without permission. I reiterated. I didn't damage or deface anything. Completely ignoring what I was saying, she handed me a summons for criminal mischief and explained that I now had an upcoming hearing date. and she left. I was pissed, but mostly in shock. During the next few weeks, I fumed aloud. Why is this happening to me? Why in the world can I expect a presidential pardon after another conviction? Finally, I remembered the words from the daughter-in-law next door. If you need the law, just let us know. When that memory came, I realized I had been set up and framed. My next door neighbor had called in one of their Jeffco deputy friends to stop me in my tracks with the charge of a criminal mischief. Utterly preposterous. Now I really knew how Job felt. I also knew that he had infinitely more patience than I. I screamed openly toward the sky. This is the United States of America. This isn't supposed to be happening here. And I'm reliving a previous life for some karmic lesson I've not yet settled. Have I not sacrificed the right number of goats? What caused this to happen? Have I once again been abandoned? What wrong have I done to deserve this? Don't you realize that I have a pending application with the United States government for a presidential pardon? Does this mean nice try, Johnny? You've come up short again, just as you headed down the home stretch? Stepped up on your deck again, didn't you, John? Boy. You can't seem to get out of your own way. I kept asking myself without an answer, an infamous question. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Over the next few weeks, I replayed in my head the issue and the ticket issue scene. Unbelievably, I found myself once again having to find a lawyer. One of the first conversations with a battle-scarred lawyer, <clears throat> it was her opinion that our approach should pretty much be to strap on the gun belts and grenades to shove this egregious b- matter Back in the face of the county sheriff's department. After listening to her strategy, I thought that someone with an apparent judge grudge should not be leading our cause. After having learned about lawyers in criminal matters, this was not the path to take. Headlines were the last thing I should try to create, especially if I didn't want to disturb the justice department and the pardon attorney's office. After a week or so, I found an attorney who had been a deputy district attorney for Jefferson County. This was the right person because he understood the psychology and mentality that lived in the shadows within the county criminal system. Having been falsely accused, who knew then the Gestapo would come knocking or be lurking around the corner to charge us with something else? We were in a situation where we did not know what to expect next. We were unable to trust our own authorities. When we saw a black and white Jeffco Sheriff's car, we held our breath. During our first meeting with the Deputy District Attorney, our attorney provided her a letter of confidential plea bargain correspondence and explained the facts of the events. I had hoped that she would view that they had ha- happened as purposely contrived. No, I didn't phase her, not even a little bit. We gritted our teeth while my case moved slowly towards disposition. I kept telling Alex, this is a test, we're being tested. We can't throw in the towel now. Gotta hang tough. It's just more karma coming back at us. What the hell did we do to deserve this? As my criminal mischief case made its way to the county judge, his response after reading the information put forth was, are you kidding? Shortly thereafter, my case was dismissed. My confidence in the criminal system, which I had learned the hard way, had been sorely shaken. However, my application for presidential pardon remained in place and undisturbed. Can we just wait this one out? Oh, Lord. Who knows how long it will be for the result to come. We have no idea when. No more tricks or tests. We've suffered enough. Okay. Boy, that was a hard time. I got to tell you. Uh, we were living again like we had Nazis for neighbors. And cops for Nazis. Um, It was terrible. And they had all the power. I could do nothing. Until I got my own lawyer. I still shake, get chills whenever I go through that part of Summit County. Sorry, Jefferson County. Chapter 29. There's always hope. It was a Monday morning on December 10th. 2007, just after Pearl Harbor Day. I was in the kitchen in Littleton, the same kitchen I had escorted the sheriff's deputy through to view the pipe. It had been four months since my unlawful arrest was finally laid to rest and sealed. I continued to wait patiently for the presidential pardon, not knowing how many more years I would have to wait. The phone rang. I picked it up. I said, hello, good morning, Mr. Smith. This is Hope McGowan from the U.S. Pardon Attorney's Office. I'm calling you to inform you that President Bush has granted your presidential pardon and wishes you a Merry Christmas. I said simply, thank you, and please thank the president for me. We said goodbye. I hung up the phone and my legs gave out on me, I slipped to the floor. I was overwhelmed. I began to sob for release and maybe happiness, almost as much as the boy sobbed a long time ago at Pat and Mammy's. Thanks again, Mr. President. Chapter 30. Integrity. Resentment. My experience is you have to have awareness before you can develop or exercise your consciousness. You have to know what's happening and what's not happening. Are there issues to deal with? Are there issues involving ethics? I thought I could be instrumental in spreading integrity, that people looked up to integrity, that people regarded integrity as something they wanted to have. I partnered with a man in San Diego to create a website on the topic. He had written a book on the subject, and the website would be a vehicle not only to post his book, but also to present to the public other information and definitions about integrity. What I learned from my participation is that people don't care about integrity because people already think they have integrity and that everybody else has it too. I would give a 20-minute speech on integrity to Rotary members and get a standing ovation, and then nothing would come from it not another booking, not another speech, not another anything, not even a question. They would pack up all the integrity they knew they had already and go home. For me, what I felt inside was had happened in Vernon Savings was ongoing emotional project. The boy knew what we felt inside. What I was still feeling turning deep upside down is that the anger machine still there And it has become even angrier. I learned that anger and grief are first cousins, not traveling far from without each other. I was chosen to be prosecuted by circumstance, by association. I left with deep resentment and anguish for what transpired. I don't resent the people who gave me the opportunity to cross the Rubicon. I don't resent their friends that I made, the FBI agents or the Justice Department attorneys. I don't resent any of them for what they did in in prosecuting me. They were just doing their jobs. My resentment goes to Dixon, Woody, the other executive officers, especially the loan officers who knew they were going down. They were all in it for themselves. They couldn't care less about the people who were affected, their careers ruined or lessened. They didn't care about a guy like me. They probably thought I knew as much as they did. That's how Dixon worked. Those guys, I'm still angry with them. I still resent what they did. Fifteen years later, after my conviction, I remember a session break outside a federal courtroom where Woody's estate was making claims against the government on money unfairly taxed. I sat on a bench out in the hallway that faced another bench, which was where Junior and the Phantom were sitting. They were laughing and choking and slapping their thighs and they call, recalled the Vernon Savings days. From their loud antics, you would never know what those guys had caused, what they had gone through as a result. You would think of them as having lost. Maybe they did, but you couldn't tell. I'm told the Phantom was prosecuted and served time in a penitentiary in Florida. I thought about what I'd lost, a career, professional status, reputation, my integrity, not caring if they were disruptive. that struck out a couple of clowns, void of consciousness without regard for the impact on others. Even today, a Monday in 2017, I still carry the resentment of what happened and what happened to me. Well, audience, that was uh, uh, a couple of good chapters, and I want to thank you for listening to these chapters and tuning into searching for integrity. So long and happy trails to all.